welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and today we welcome back to the show Dr. Geraldine Datz, a licensed clinical health psychologist specializing in the treatment of pain and the president and clinical director for the Southern Behavioral Medicine Associates. Welcome. Hi, Geraldine. Welcome to the show again. <clears throat> Geraldine is a friend of mine. She's a pain psychologist. She founded a clinic in the South in Hattiesburg, uh, Mississippi. And Geraldine, could you uh, tell us how we find you? Absolutely. Um, yes, our main office is in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. We have a website, southernbmed.com, S-O-U-T-H-E-R-N-B-M-E-D.com. And that describes all the services that our clinic offers. So Gerald's done a great job over the years and has taught me a lot about just the overall generalized approach to chronic pain. <clears throat> and we talked in the first episode about how pain is multifactorial and really to be successfully in treating it, why it takes a multifactorial approach. And I've said for a long time, all interventions work in chronic pain, but none of them work in isolation. It's always a multi-pronged approach. So I was gonna, Geraldine has a couple of cases she's gonna discuss in some detail about what she does in her approach is successful and why she thinks it works. And uh, Joe, you wanna talk about the person in the car accident first? Sure. So I had uh, a young man, he was in his 20s and um, he was driving a cement truck. And uh, this gentleman was actually rear-ended um, by someone and uh, unbelievably to me, when a cement truck is rear-ended, um, bad things can happen. And he was actually rear-ended by a civilian truck and pushed over a ravine. He had a rollover accident. Interestingly, the person who hit him was going over 100 miles an hour um, and was drunk and was also uh, in a modified vehicle because he was a paraplegic. But anyway... Um, so he injured my client and, uh, my client came to me probably about, oh, I, I would say it was almost a year into his injury. So we refer to that as a lot of things being crystallized at that point. He was very depressed, very anxious, had a lot of pain. Um, he wasn't a surgical candidate, but he did have some, um, structural issues in his lumbar spine and in his neck. And he had basically failed everything that had been tried medically, you know, injections, and he had been to a few rounds of PT. And um, people thought that he was a little difficult. Um, and when I evaluated him, I mentioned on our previous podcast that we do this very thorough psychological assessment. I saw a lot of pain-related fear, a lot of paranoia, about the medical system, a lot of anger. You know, he um, was angry that he, the way his job had treated him, they had let him go. He had struggled without um, benefits for a while. Um, I think at one point he had been sent to another mental health professional and they suggested he was, you know, feigning. And so he just was bitter and angry and upset. And, um, 
I rolled out our approach. He actually did not go through our functional restoration program, which is the multidisciplinary program. He was just in cognitive behavioral therapy with me. And um, we had talked previously about um, what CBT does. And basically my goal with him was to make him feel listened to, um, understand where he was coming from, reduce some of his helplessness. He was incredibly wired, um, very, very tense. There was a lot of muscular bracing. I could see all of this in the interview and um, the follow-up appointments. And where, was, where was his pain? Was it both neck and back pain he was having? Yeah, neck and lumbar spine. Correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I mean, he really would complain of pain all over. Like when you would look at his pain diagram, you know, you would see, you know, all of these blacked out areas. And, you know, to me, that signals this, you know, response. And, and of course, there's a muscular response. There's, you know, he had muscle spasms, he would have headaches, tingling, you know, all of these things. So um, really, I looked at a lot of his beliefs about his back pain. You know, he would have a lot of thoughts like this pain will never go away. There is no cure. I can't do anything because I have pain. Um, he had young children and he had um, kind of just dropped out of his whole life, you know, gone into the back bedroom. Um, he felt like he wanted surgery because he wanted to be fixed. And if he couldn't be fixed, he was just going to give up. And as I hear these things, you know, after years of working with patients, I hear touch points. I get excited, actually, because I hear fundamental core beliefs that are assumptions and that can be uh, reframed in a way that would be more helpful. So my approach with him was to basically take this mind-body approach using CBT and um, we started with his thoughts actually because he was so overwhelmed and he would come in and cry and be angry and the listening helps a lot just an open safe place for people to process and not have to 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 do anything or be any certain way and then i would start to introduce the notions of you know well how does your pain vary throughout the day um and how are you dealing with this? You, you say that you, you can't deal with this, I'll never be pain-free, but yet here we are. And so there was this gentle um, challenging of these thoughts um, and what are the things that can be done to modify or adapt despite his pain? And what was he ignoring even though he had pain? Like his wife, was doing the homework every day, making dinner, going grocery shopping, like life was carrying on without him. And he wanted to be working and had kind of very traditional views. But I pointed out there were many ways that with which he could be a husband, which he could be a father. You know, even just reading his kids a story at night, you know, what are the ways that we could get him plugged back in with his life? Because he had so much toxic shame. He was, you know, uh, African-American young male in the deep South. And, you know, his identity was so tied up in working and providing, and he felt embarrassed and, and, and ashamed at his current status. So my interventions with him circulated a lot around um, that and, and starting to go and do again in, in a different way. And he, uh, and just to be clear, we both 
have talked about this on the third podcast, when unpleasant negative thoughts and hopelessness actually create inflammation in the body. In other words, they actually create physical symptoms because your nerve conduction increases, your sensitivity increases, and then, of course, the mental pain and physical pain are processed in a similar manner, and it's just pure misery. In fact, I just want to cite one paper. There's a paper, two papers, that have documented that the impact of chronic pain on a person's life is equivalent to having terminal cancer. It's that extreme. And so this guy sounds like he was in that hole pretty deeply. He was. It's extremely overwhelming. And, uh, you know, I, I think that emotional, that safe emotional processing is really important. And then it's directed because I don't just, you know, work and then people cry and then they go home and they wait till a week later or a couple of days later. You know, he had assignments. He was doing things at home. He was, uh, he learned how to calm himself down. One of the biggest things uh, with him was teaching him how to be an observer of his pain. You know, the pain would come and I have, you know, a number of techniques where I work with patients to create some distance from their pain because they will feel the physical sensation and it's so overwhelming and so loaded and the thoughts come so quickly. Can we just start to observe the pain? Are there things we can do to distract, ignore the conversations focused on the pain, the over-identifying? Not that it's not there, but if it's not helping him to feel better, what is the point? of the repetitive focus and that will reinforce also that entire pathway of you know we would do little experiments where and he would get to the point where he was joking about it where he'd be like yep you just said the word back pain and there it is and so that was him being an observer and that you know those are my you know ecstatic moments because we're actually creating space and objectivity between the physical sensation and the emotional response nice so he, you said that he eventually did pretty well. Oh, he did very well. Um, I worked with him for quite some time, but there were so many competing stressors as there often is within the healthcare system. So, you know, if I could just work in a pure way and stop all the other things, <laughs> right. my work would probably be much faster. But I would right. say I worked with him for about a year and okay. uh, we discharged him and he went back to another job he had been working with the department of transportation and he i mean he, that was another thing he had been told that um he should go on disability and that inadvertently became his goal he didn't even want that goal right. but you know it's like unconsciously if i could say that or, or explicitly he just set his mind on that goal and we know that goal setting is extremely important to the brain. We will mobilize all our resources towards a goal, positive or negative. Right. And so it was, a, it was a, a structured process of changing his goals. And, um, you know, he was in a, a pain group that we had and he would see other people and that activated a way where he um, kind of became a leader, like a spiritual leader to the okay. group. He wow. had a different role. It was great. And his pain, I'm assuming, somewhat disappeared? Uh, yeah, I mean, it went down to an extremely manageable level. Right. You know? right. Um, and so that's what's important. You know, and some patients, I will say this, and, and I don't know how the um, audience will respond to this, but a, a lot of literature suggests, even when you go through a functional restoration program, which is kind of the top end of recovery programs, 
a person may come in with a pain of a six, seven, or an eight, and they may leave with a subjective sense of a pain at a six, seven, or eight, but their interpretation of a six, seven, or eight at discharge is completely different than what it was at the beginning. So I love when pain ratings go down or when they go to zero and sometimes they do, but when they don't, the main thing I care about is the person's relationship to their pain. And I have right. a woman who works at a gas station and she'll tell me my pain's a seven or eight every single day, but she's running three gas stations and she sticks her foot and um, bird seed every morning because she's got crips and desensitizes it and pulls her sock on and she gets out there. And that's the most important thing. Whereas when I first saw her, she was, you know, drinking a ton and not working and about to lose her kid. And her pain was a six or a seven or an eight. Got it. No, I agree. That's a fantastic illustration. But you had a second case also that was quite a little, quite a bit different, but also illustrates a few other points too. Sure. So I, you know, I, I've observed that a lot of times people will interpret dramatic injuries as um, the most debilitating and the most catastrophic. And again, just to kind of use that mind-body piece of um, our, our, our brains, that's not always the case. So I had another case of an individual who had a really dramatic injury, um, not for the faint of heart. This individual um, actually worked in a cement mixing plant and cement mixers need to be cleaned like all machines. And he was in there uh, cleaning the machine and the machine was off. Unfortunately, the individual who was in control of the machine forgot that he was in there cleaning it and turned it on. And uh, he went into the base of the machine and his, both of his legs uh, were ground up to above the knee before it was determined that he was in there and the machine could be stopped. Oh my goodness. So it was horrific. Um, one of the worst injuries I've heard about, they had to tear the roof off the building to get the um, fire department to get the machine in there to help extricate him. He was awake the entire time, two hours for the extrication process. Um, he lost both legs and uh, was a double amputee. And um, he was in the process of getting prostheses when he saw me. Now, anybody who heard this story would think immediate PTSD, you know, hor horrific experience. Now, PTSD is subjective, right? Now, interestingly, this patient had a very, very traumatic childhood. Um, childhood abuse, neglect, mistreatment, um, brief stint of drug abuse, both parents had um, addiction and other mental health issues. And so he had a really challenging child background. And we know from ACE studies, adverse childhood experiences, that these things can either produce more risk or they can produce resilience. And in my client's case, it actually produced resilience, meaning, and this is something that is so ignored. When I asked him, what do you make of everything that's happened? How do you cope with this? His answer was, I have been through so much in my life. This is just another thing. Wow. And we forget. And, you know, and the ACE literature says this, but it's so ignored because we've become so accustomed to just emphasizing risk that the resilience piece is critical as well. And that a high ACE score, just because someone has a traumatic childhood, 
does, is not the death knell for someone. It could actually be that that person is incredibly strong. And you and I can probably both think of people who have overcome tremendous adversity and become the strongest, quote unquote, people that we know, the most resilient people that we know. Right. So this individual did not have PTSD. He was not overly obsessed with his pain. He wanted to be, you know, returned to normal. And his biggest challenges were actually his family, who were very non-supportive, um, who latched on to so him. So they were, they were non-supportive? Not supportive, correct. How can that be? Uh, well, he had a very dysfunctional family. Um, there were people who emerged from the woodwork when they realized he would have a lawsuit and they wanted to be part of that compensation and saw him as a, a way out for, for them, their own needs. Oh my goodness. Um, his mother was not helpful. I, I mean, me and his case manager worked with him quite a bit just to get his house modified. Um, his, I mean, his mother had kind of a... Um, you know, he was a young man also, I want to say about 27, 28, maybe when it happened. And um, she would come in and just kind of tell me, you know, how disturbed he was. And I could tell this was a very old script from when he was much younger. And so my role with him was, was very different in terms of, I guess, protecting his resiliency and advocating for him. And um, a lot of people had marginalized him because of his background. And I think assumed he was going to be a certain way and wasn't. So, I mean, that's another role of um, mental health and psychology is, you know, I, I didn't come in with any bias. I listened to him, I understood him and I believed him and I didn't let all of my preconceived notions about what he should or shouldn't have as a result of the accident influence me. And how did he do? He's doing well. I'm actually uh, still seeing him. Um, he's had a lot of a rough go with um, some, you know, he had uh, a number of issues with uh, the, uh, his stumps healing and stuff like that. And um, had to have a little bit of a revision and, and issues like that. And he's still having challenges with his family and with his girlfriend. Um, and that's why I continue to work with him. Um, but he's, now, he's doing well considering. Is he back? Is he back working? He is not working. He wants to go back to school. Okay. Um, and uh, re-specialize. And he's really interested in becoming a, a rehab consultant. So the clinic where he keeps going for his prostheses said we could use people like you because people come in and they've lost a leg or both legs or an arm and they feel like we don't understand. And if they came in and saw a double amputee on you know two prostheses smiling and in work shorts and wearing sneakers and saying hey you know it's like it you can't bottle that like that immediately gives somebody hope when it when in fact probably when they're first coming in they're thinking this is the worst place ever because everyone else is able-bodied right i want to make one final comment here just to contrast so you know i'm not somebody who thinks you could do mind over matter because the unconscious brain is so powerful but your mind can direct the rest of where you go. So it's sort of a different experience where you, because I'm assuming if you hadn't had, if he had not had your support, he probably would not have done very well. Yeah, there were a lot of challenges, you know, absolutely. And I think the accountability of coming in for treatment and, you know, the influence of negative 
you know, influences in his life is much more magnified when you don't have a place, an objective place to process it and advocate for you and remind you of who you are and what your goals are. Right. Because all these quote stories and concepts that are fed into your brain actually change the body's chemistry and people get sick and they also don't thrive. And so you do become your story, which I'll use the word is, is psychological and physiological both and really just the total body response to a threat. So, I mean, his is a remarkable story because I mean, 99% of people simply would not have moved on. They would have been stuck forever. Wow. And so that's, that's a remarkable story. Mm-hmm. But anyway, well, I think um, I'd love to talk about another show with you on family issues. We found out in our chronic pain work that the family turned out to be probably the biggest factor for a lot of people, whether they were successful or not. And it is remarkable as chronic pain patients get better, people, families would actually want to sort of hold them back as a basic familiar pattern. So it's interesting. So Geraldine, thank you very much. Can you just remind us again how to find you? Absolutely. Um, our clinic is Southern Behavioral Medicine Associates and we're located in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. We serve Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, and we do telehealth around the country. And our website is southernbmed.com. Well, thank you. Geraldine's a great resource. I've met her team. I've We've been down there a couple of times and I've had dinner with her whole team. It's just a phenomenal energy group of people. And it, she's a great, her, she and her clinic is just a great resource. So we really appreciate your uh, spending time with us today. My pleasure also. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Gerilyn Datz, for being on the show today and for sharing two moving stories of patient recovery and healing that illustrate the power of her approach to the treatment of chronic pain. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.